Welcome back. Thank you once again for hanging out with us. This is the one and only IT in the D show. We're all the way to episode 414. This is your host, Bob Waltenspiel, hanging out with producer Randy Walker. Guest this week, one of my favorite people on the planet. Yes, I said it. Mary Bobbitt. She's an agile coach, consultant, software dev, wizard, dynamo, public speaker, and new wrestling fan. And she's got a lot of great takes. You can find us online, itinthed.com. Do us a favor. Give us a likes on the socials and subscribe to us everywhere. Find podcasts are sold. Check us out at meetup.com slash IT in the D. We do have an event next week. It is the uh, part two of a three-part series at Whiskey in the Jar and Ham Tramic. Five to eight, no speakers, no cover, just IT people hanging out, having a good time, making friends or not. It's up to you. Bring some business cards or don't. It's really up to you. But those are uh, the great hosts there, August and Mikey. Uh, great little uh, patio. Hopefully the weather still uh, cool next week. We can hang out out back, but uh, yeah, the, the good times if you haven't been. So yeah, definitely meetup.com slash IT in the day. So Mary, how are you for a, for a newlywed? Yeah, I just got married a couple weeks ago. Uh, my wedding was postponed as many of us did have our weddings postponed due to the, the global health crisis, but uh, not much has changed. I still really just hang out with my cats and watch wrestling. So I guess marriage has been good to me so far. Did you guys live together prior? Yeah, we've lived together for almost four no. years now. That, so that, that, that doesn't change. I guess I thought something would. Like I figured I would come home and something would be different. But nah. really, the cats were just more needy since we left for a honeymoon. That was the only difference. Yeah, that was, there was a lot of change when I because uh, we decided not to live together and um, lots of things uh, were discovered and uncovered and um, yeah, 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 a lot of stories for for a, for over a drink, not on a podcast. <laughs> but um, hey, I knew you as kind of the the, the agile uh, queen god person knew everything, kind of got everybody indoctrinated. Um, pan, I'm looking at this now from. Pandemic shutdown, can't sit at a Kanban board in the morning, can't lean over your desk and talk to somebody. How has Agile been affected with the remote workforce? Because a lot of people, a lot of straight coders probably like it, but in a collaborative environment, it has to be, I don't know, you tell me. I think that's a really excellent question. And I think the most important thing when we ask any questions about how work has changed is not how agile was impacted, not how productivity was impacted, but how people were impacted. Because at the end of the day, it really has been and is a very challenging time for a great many people. And so I think agile has been impacted the same way our teams have. We have Zoom fatigue. We have people taking care of kids at home. We have fear in a lot of areas, especially in the early times and mid-pandemic. It's brought a lot of teams closer, and it's created a lot of challenges for many people in teams. And me personally, I'm a true extrovert. I'm the person walking around the rows at work who annoys you because they interrupt you and they want to just say hi and hang out. And for me, it was a huge challenge to understand how do you meet people in a world where you can't have a water cooler moment? How do you engage and learn about people? I used to always say, and I still say this often, if the first time I ask you for help is the first time I meet you, I'm doing something wrong. And so as an agile coach, 
I have to be even more intentional, intentional, intentional about connection. We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. Shakespeare made up words. So can I. Sure. So we have to be more intentional about connection. So I'll set up virtual coffees with people I don't know. We'll start, you know, our meetings with sharing about our pets. But even that gets a little bit rote after a while. So we have to find ways to create connection while still having boundaries in a world where my office is the same spot I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at at my kitchen table. And to me, it's all about meeting the people first. It's not about the team. It's not about productivity. It's not about delivery. It's how do we create an environment in a world that is incredibly challenging, in a world that is increasingly anxious, where people can feel confident and supported on their team. It's very strange. We we hired someone in Florida and we hired them remotely. And there was a thing I was, uh, I don't remember where I was reading it or seeing it, but there's a thing like you don't know what they look like while you're just seeing them on Zoom. They could be seven feet tall. They could be five foot two. And there's like this thing where you first meet someone, right? And me, I'm still, uh, you saw me when I was on crutches. I'm still hobbling. So like, you know, you meet people and I'm 6'3", I'm, I'm a big dude. And here I am I'm walking with a cane. It's like, you didn't know, like I could have been anyone as far as you knew. And, you know, we fly down there to meet him finally. And, you know, he was about what I expected, but, you know, like, I just wonder what, you know, it, it reciprocates, right? How, I guess, you know, when you're seeing people on video, again, it's one of those things like Randy could be six foot eight right now. He could be five foot two. I have no idea. I am actually eight feet tall, believe it or not. No, but I I think you have two really good points. And the first one is I went to a, an outdoor meetup a couple months ago when things were a little bit better in my area. And everyone I saw there, I had screen, seen on a two inch by two inch screen. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen them as a person. I didn't know what they look like. I didn't recognize people who were my friends. Because I had never seen them before. How do we have small talk? Has anyone figured that out? Because I've completely forgotten. It's like I've lost social skills over the past two years. So I hope everyone in the world will forgive us all as we start to re-enter the workforce. Because I forgot how to talk about the weather, uh, it turns out. It's an old German proverb. Alles kann immer das Wetter sprechen. Everyone can always talk about the weather. Um, you would it. think, though, it is interesting that the more we've become globalized, I'm working with teams across the country and across the world in different countries right now. When I used to only work with teams in Michigan, the weather was great opening small talk. Now it doesn't necessarily make sense because people might be at night when I'm talking to them or it might be a totally different season. I think the other thing that you mentioned that's really unique and interesting about the world of, of the global health crisis is accessibility. That people who need physical accessibility, who have joint issues, are able to engage in the workplace in a way they may not have been able to in the past. And in addition, there is more accessibility and less judgment in some sense in not being able to see people face to face. And I'll be curious because I'm not an expert in the field of inclusion and diversity in any respect. I will be curious what types of data come out of this experiment we've been having of how the virtual world impacts accessibility and even conscious and unconscious bias. I think it will be really interesting to your point about you didn't know I walked with a cane. 
How could that have impacted it before the pandemic versus now versus after? I don't know, but I think it will be a really rich and fruitful area of study. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You don't see me walking around the office or I would maybe not choose to go over and talk to you like I used to in the past because now it's very hard for me. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's why I look at that going, now it's very easy if we are remote that I can call you, I can Zoom you, I can, you know, and we can still continue this thing. You know what I mean? So yeah, I understand with the whole inclusion thing. It's it's dead on. You talked about small talk and it, it just reminded me, like one of the big parts of my life was going to the breakfast diner in the morning when, when you know, and I'd always have a suit on or a sport coat. And I'd always catch the eye or ear of a, someone uh, in a suit also, and we would talk shop. Um, or I used to go to the bar by myself. And it was for a couple of reasons. One was I liked to go with no expectations. Another was I liked random conversations with random people. And today I find myself not doing it at all. And it's not that I miss it. It's just that I don't do it. Like it almost like it changed. And I'm just curious from your aspect of kind of being that extrovert, have you stopped doing what you used to do because of how things have changed? Yes, and to my own detriment. So I used to read books at a bar. I I may not have been talking to people as much, but when I first moved to Michigan, I had never met anyone in the state, had never visited Michigan. And what are you going to do in the evening? So I go out, I take a book, I get an old fashioned and I'd read at the bar for a couple hours. And I was always going out to different conventions, going out to different parties, different things, even work events. And these days, I'm used to being a homebody. I'm used to being inside. And it is more stressful to be in social events. And I think this will be one of the many challenges as the workforce begins to go back into the office, or even if you're not going into the office, having in-person meetings or engaging with each other in quote unquote real life or in-person life, right? It's that people will be having new social experiences that they may not have had in a long time. Social mores and rules have changed and we don't fully understand what that should look like. And the exhaustion of being social in a new and different way will take a hit on us all, especially those of us who have been mostly remote and mostly in our own homes. And so as the as people re-enter workforce, I think the best thing we can do is have self-compassion and compassion for each other. Because we talked a lot initially during the pandemic about Zoom fatigue, right? You're on call all day, you get tired, you don't want to be on video anymore. Well, and you I feel, hold on, real quick with the Zoom thing, what I found out, there's this weird etiquette, like, I can walk into a meeting with like a thing of Skittles and a water and kind of glance around the room and have side conversations. But on Zoom, I have to be eyes open forward. Can't, if I feel if I have a drink of water, I feel weird. Like you can't anything. It, it, it's it's a weird expectation. Yeah, there's different social standards that have been set. And as we reenter the workforce, we're going to have in-person fatigue. It's going to happen. I'm already having it just when I go out and see my friends sometimes because we're used to engaging in this primary mode of communication. Our world has been switched up and we have to learn again 
how to interact in society as it's shaped moving forward, whatever elements of that may impact us. And so I expect we'll have tons of think pieces on return to work fatigue and in-person fatigue, just like we did on Zoom fatigue, because we're going through changes. So I'm an, I'm an agile coach. I'm an enterprise agile coach. I work with a lot of unique teams. I don't just work with traditional software engineering teams. I work with teams who work on control systems, who are globally distributed teams, marketing teams, and product management teams, teams that may not fit your in-the-mold box. And working with them, you realize that we have to be adaptable. We have to be more agile than we are with any other type of team because it's about meeting people where they're at. It's about meeting teams in their work to help us achieve our goals. If we don't approach our teams the same way when we go back in office, we're going to cause even more burnout. And maybe we'll have the great resignation part two at the worst. At the best, people will just be tired. And so it is our imperative as leaders and coaches and just people who want work to be a place of maybe not joy, but at least goodness and calmness and engagement, right? For those people, we have to be very intentional about understanding the stress that we're going to have on our social interaction with other people as we move into this new world. Well, you have interesting frames of thought there because you have people like me that are insanely euphoric when I'm in a group of people, right? Um, you, you know, same thing, extrovert, you know, likes being around people, likes talking. You have also other people that perhaps have migraines like working at three in the morning with the lights out in the basement and they're the most productive, but they need to be part of a team. So A, as a, as a leader, you want people to work in their, in their perfect environment to get the most product productivity, but also B, you need them to be part of a team and collaborate, right? So I guess how do you, you know, I don't know if you have the perfect answer for it, but finding that balance between allowing people that flex to be at their best and, but also kind of work, you know, with it, especially with agile, you need to be part of a team. It just won't work, you know, otherwise. I was talking with a team the other day and they said, what agile practices is this team not following correctly? And I said, well, they're not exactly estimating right. They're not using this work item right. These acceptance criteria don't make sense. But an emphasis on the but, none of that matters. The thing that matters is are they sustainably delivering value in a way that supports the organization the individual team, and their personal goals. So to me, it's not a question of what do we do to balance this autonomy and collaboration, especially in distributed environments, either across countries, across time zones, or even just across types of work. It's what is our intent? And everything else we do matches that intent. And those team members should share that intent. If our intent is to, to deliver important and impactful work, let's negotiate together. Let's talk to the team. Let's discuss. It's always about meeting people and understanding what works for them. Because I could give you an answer that works for my team. I could say we look at some key overlapping hours on our geographically distributed team. We make sure we have certain meetings during that time and we leave meetings for people who you know, are able and need to be there at other times. And that works for this team. And often those lessons will, will transfer to other teams. But 
I also work with other geographically distributed teams who truly is on Slack all the time and is able to have better communication on Slack and then a touch base once a week, depending on the situation. So it is about what is the intent? How do we measure success? And how do we all embody and share that intent and objective? Agile, to me, isn't about a practice. It's about are we all on the same page and marching to, to the same drum to reach our goal? And how do we measure that goal? So how has it evolved over the past few years? I remember when I got first introduced <clears throat> introduced to Agile and the Agile and Beyond conference, and we made cracks Agile and Beyond. Um, <laughs> and, and there was, you know, the whole thing with Waterfall this and, you know, there's the whole differences thing. Has it evolved or is it still the same framework methodology that just needs to be tweaked as you go consistently and constantly? I think people are recognizing the technical implications of Agile and the need of DevOps and being able to streamline, having a real whole product view of from when we have an idea to release, to sustainability of a product, to sunsetting, what is that entire view and how do we optimize that? Prior in Agile, it was really about the development process. It wasn't about the entire organization looking towards the same goal and the entire life cycle of the system. A lot of Agilists weren't as focused on technical practices, though many of the original Agilists were, and those evolving over time as our software gets better as well. To me, what's interesting about Agile and the evolution of work is that Agile has become the standard. It is no longer this new rebellious idea. The idea of Agile is almost just, yes, obviously. And so what I'm interested in is what's the next thing? What are we really going to optimize next? What is the next area of focus? A lot of it will be this idea of hybrid work. A lot of it will be this whole view, this whole company, whole product view of our approach. But I am very curious about what the next evolution is. And I don't have an answer. If I did, I wouldn't give it to you. I'd sell it and make millions <laughs> on books. Aren't we um, there right now, though, with when you now you have a hybrid remote workforce trying to adopt Agile? I think we're always there. I think an interesting question is Scrum, does it work? Is that the right framework? How do we move forward? What are the different ones under the Agile umbrella, the different processes that many teams follow in their direction to be Agile? The question I ask is, what's next? As the world gets faster, as the world gets more connected, as the world gets more hybrid, where are we going to find the wisdom of startups combined with the needs for scaling of regulated industries? How do we bring agile to highly regulated industries? But how do we also push the envelope with companies that can be even more flexible in the startup world? And there's some underlying principles there that we follow. And I don't know the answer, but I do know that I've seen so much success if teams don't focus on, am I following this framework correctly, but rather focus on what are our goals and what steps do we need to take to achieve them? Because here's the heart of Agile. If you're listening and you don't know very much about Agile, this is it. The idea of Agile is it takes more than one person to deliver something valuable, and we should work together to figure out the best way to do that. And we should deliver small pieces so we know where we're going. We still haven't mastered that as an industry. 
the simple concepts. In fact, we've mastered the harder things about estimation in a project management world than we have about the simple ideas of aligning on outcomes. So that's always where I go to first. How we achieve them, I think we're always improving. I think we'll find something we never thought of before in the next 10 years. I think isn't that the point of Agile, though, is that it's never perfect. It's always going to be imperfect and it's never done. It's always, you can always do, you can always, you know, it's kind of like the Monday armchair quarterback, I always say, when you watch football. And then you can always look at a dev project and say, oh, if we would have only done that, we could have shaved off that. Or if we would only done that, it would have, you know, is that, am I, am I on to something with that? Yeah, that is agile. Agile is all about continuous improvement. It's about recognizing There's this great quote about Scrum, which is one of the processes under the Agile umbrella, which says, Scrum is this radical idea that when you start a project, why not check in and see how it's going and change it if it's not going well? So radical, right? Like, why not check in? But it is. So you mentioned earlier in this podcast, I'm a newer wrestling fan. And I am. I became a wrestling fan right before the pandemic of a league called All Elite Wrestling. In fact, my wedding day. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Wrestling's amazing. I actually had my wedding cake made in a wrestling ring. So it's a real 14 by 14 inch wrestling ring covered in fondant. It was delicious. Um, And there's this All Elite Wrestling was a new program that was starting up. And they had some storylines that just didn't work. And so they ended them. They didn't keep throwing money down that path. They didn't keep going. They pivoted based on their customer, their fans' response. That's agility. How you do that better, how you do that faster, more efficiently with people who are closest to the decisions, making that decision. Those are all tactical questions. But in this new world of work, how do we improve together? What is next? That's always the question I'm asking. I think it's the same analogy as, you know, I've been a DJ, you know, I don't do it as often, you know, I do four, three, four parties a year now, but if you play a crappy song, you switch it up, you cut it quickly and then play something that fills the dance floor. No, I get it. Like it's, um, yeah. I mean, if you, you can pretty much put it into a lot of different things that happened, right? If you're running the ball up the middle, um, you know, maybe you should do a play action and throw it to the tight end, right? Like, you know, just you got to, but you have to acknowledge it quickly and change quickly. So I don't really sport. So I got most of that, but I, I, yes, go team. <laughs> um, not a sports person, but I will say, I think the idea of agile is how do we pivot in the best way? For our customers, ourselves, our clients, each other, for the team. And how do we know if things are working earlier? I mean, that's the central question. That's why technical agility is so important. Because you don't know if the code works until it's merged into a centralized environment. Until you've been able to add production data to it. Until you've really been able to test with users. You don't know if users want it. Ever heard of Microsoft Clippy? Love Microsoft Clippy. No, everyone hates Microsoft Clippy. Terrible user experience. Why? Who knows? Because it's annoying. Because it's annoying. How could we have known that earlier? That's the question. That's why technical agility and DevOps is really the most important thing for organizations to think about. Because you can have the best processes in place, but you don't know if something works until it works. So your pipelines need to be able to give you fast feedback. 
And that's a challenge. So then Agile is just a bunch of little waterfalls? I mean, sure. <laughs> He's pushing buttons. Randy's pushing buttons. What's interesting about the original paper on waterfall and waterfall for those listening who aren't familiar was an original approach to IT software development that focused on phases where work only goes one way. Like when you push something down a waterfall, it doesn't go back up. The paragraph after the author describes waterfall says, if we do not have feedback loops without this process, there's a chance we will have really bad code at the end. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But the point is, how do we get feedback faster? How do we know if our code works? And if that means we have mini waterfalls, sure. The question is not, are we estimating correctly? The question is, are we delivering and aligned on outcomes in a way that's sustainable for us? What about Agile compared to VNV? VNV can like be a part of Agile. They're not really comparisons. I think Agile is more of a philosophy or approach, and verification and validation is more... How do you verify and validate we're on the right page? Now, if you think about hardware development, so I'm working with a couple of hardware teams now, there are constraints you have to deal with, right? There are certain things, physical objects that literally constrain how quickly you can get feedback. And that's why I think DevOps and automation is really so important because it helps mitigate those constraints even in the hardware context as our technology evolves and develops. But we do need to be very intentional when working on programs that have multiple teams working on challenging systems, especially cyber-physical systems. It's a good question. I think one of the, the benefits I see in, in VNV is that, you know, you have the people who are writing the tests actually helping come up with the requirements. And sometimes you don't get that a lot, you know, and each level has its, people on the other side who you know you have the people on the left who are developing it and the people on the right who are testing it and they contact each other and interact or ideally should be interacting with each other at each level and i think um waterfall definitely misses out on that it's just you know one to the next without uh, that follow through on the other side but then uh how would you how does that or how would that interact with an agile module uh development agile is an approach, it's not a particular process. So you can approach things in an agile way. There are scrum teams that are not agile at all, right? I'm sure there's VMV that's very agile and VMV that's not agile. It's just how do we lower the cost of change? How are we able to pivot? How do we get fast feedback? It's a, the two biggest things that teams ask for. So I work a lot with quality engineering and, and quality work. And people always say, shouldn't quality be a separate sprint? Shouldn't we test things later? And then they also ask, why does quality need to be involved in gathering requirements or building out a backlog? And then they wonder why they have quality problems. Well, if we don't have testable items, how do we know if they worked? But more importantly, how do we know if they solved the problem? Mm -hmm. If you don't have quality built in from the very initial idea, if you aren't asking yourself the question, how do we validate that this worked and that it solved the problem? You're going to have issues throughout the entire, entire development life cycle. And these are the key areas that we miss. It's that we can have the best idea in the world. How do we test that we're headed in the right direction? What are leading indicators that let us know throughout the course of development? And what are lagging indicators that at the end tell us to inform our next work? If we don't have in quality embedded in every step of that life cycle, 
we're going to miss something. We're going to miss something anyway, but it's a lot more, it's a lot easier and it mitigates the consequences to involve quality from the very get-go. And by that, I don't just mean testers, to be clear. Testers and quality aren't the same thing. They're both important, but it's, it's about building in the idea of validation. Why do you think developers who purport to practice agile are so against requirements and the requirements gathering process? I've seen this lots of times in teams I've worked with and it just requirements is like a swear word to them. I think it's because people don't want to document their work, which is fair. I mean, it's administrative overhead, just like going to meetings. If you are somebody who wants to create, you don't want to spend time writing down what you need to create, right? You want to get your head in the code. You want to have very clean code that you can read and understand. I think it's human nature to want to get to the point in some sense. And if you don't understand the value of not a requirements gathering process even, but a conversation to understand the needs and to align on those goals and objectives. It's human nature to skip that, to want to just get to tell me what to do. I also think there are lots of personalities and often developers or people tinkering to build things for their entire lives and they want to build things. But personally... I love the whole life cycle. I can't dev. I like to play one on TV, but I'm not one. And I have so much respect for this incredible art of creating something existent out of something that hasn't. It's literally turning text into gold. It's the most incredible thing. But then we have systems that are built incorrectly or systems that are even built unethically in the world of AI right? Where we have Twitter bots learning from the internet, very, very bad things. And so it's so important to understand the entire thing that we're building and the implications of that thing, not just an individual piece. Even from a technical perspective, if we don't know the purpose, when we go to integrate that code, we're going to have messy architecture over time. So pre-show... We talk, you talked to, uh, and one of the things that stuck out to me, and I think it was funny, was, uh, and I totally agree with you a thousand percent, and I want to dive into it, but like you said, corporate training sucks. <laughs> and we just, and you just kind of like dropped the bomb when you walked away. Um, but I want to, I want to dive into that because this is, this is, A, this is near and dear to Randy's heart. And B, I couldn't agree more, um, but I want to get your take on it. There's been this big move in training circles over the past, I don't know, however many years, to go from training to learning and development. And it sounds semantic, but it's not. Training is, I teach you to perform a specific skill, and you perform that over and over. I was training to be a cheerleader at one point, and the first thing they do is teach you to fall. I don't know how many times I fell, because you're going to fall. You have to fall. So we had to fall every single day. I was a terrible cheerleader. I never graduated that camp, but you can bet your bottom dollar I learned how to fall. Training is teaching a rote skill. Complex initiatives like software development, even like compliance to some extent, change leadership, those aren't a repeatable skill. They are rather a higher level, complex, critical thinking task that takes contextual 
understanding. So I can teach you how to code hello world, but that may not apply three months down the road in a legacy system. And so we still often approach training as a tool to solve a problem. You are clicking phishing emails, so I train you, therefore you don't click phishing emails. But we don't look at learning, and more importantly, we don't look at the incentives of an organization. Why are you clicking that email? What incentivizes you to click it? Is it leadership? Is it money? Is it communication styles? Is it literal incentives? What might it be? If we want to foster learning, we can't think about learning as this point in time training where you're trained, therefore you get it, therefore you should do it. Humans don't work that way. If we did, I would be a math genius. I took so many math classes and I can't do it. So I think we've missed the boat a little bit where we've focused on training. We've missed the forest for the trees. We've focused on training at the expense of learning. We don't create comprehensive learning, both on the job, both initially and over time through through knowledge that is not explicit within our organization. I mean, there's just as much learning in water cooler conversation as there is in the training class itself. So I always laugh, me being in the data center in the vendor space, this was my world of training. Um, corporate would say, you know, you'd have to do these four exams or four tests that would they would curate. And in the beginning, it was next, 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 submit, and you were done. And you could knock a whole day out of training and, you know, 15 minutes. Then they got smart and made you watch videos that you couldn't fast forward. So then what you would do is you would put that on a different monitor and then go to your laptop and continue doing work. And then you'd wait until you saw the next button pop up because it was on mute, right? And at the end, there was one person would do it and then give the answers to everyone because if you failed it three times, you got your manager new. Um, and there, no one ever really cared. It was always this the, like a really dumb message. And whoever designed it had good intention probably, but totally missed the mark. But then you would get, you know, your your actual training was from one of the vendors, whether it be VMware, Cisco, Microsoft, and you got their little three letter, four letter, four letter certification that you were immersed in, and actually had to take a proctored exam. But like, but that training didn't correlate to the training, like the company. You know what I mean? So like, you got trained on all these little products, but you really didn't get trained on anything the company did. And I my think favorite. That, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. That was it. I just was like, I think they're just missing the ball on because I think the stuff from the vendors was you could walk out of there and actually have skills to, you know, to, to take to work. Whereas the my stuff favorite training methodology is called action mapping. And it speaks to this problem. When you do action mapping by, mapping by Kathy Moore, it's a really great technique. You start with what is the behavior people need to exhibit at work? So not what they need to know. What, do, what behavior, what literally needs to change? You identify if it's a knowledge challenge, if it's an incentive challenge, because maybe it's not a candidate for training at all. Maybe you need something else. If it is a candidate for training, once you've identified the behavior, you build a practice activity. So if I need you as a leader, you need to give feedback in a way that's actionable to your team members. You need to give hard feedback. I'm going to have you practice doing that. I'm not going to have you practice some other icebreaker. I am going to have you practice the thing you have to do. If I need to code in a legacy system, I'm going to have you practice in a legacy system, not a greenfield one. 
And so the very first thing you do is build practice activities, and then you only give enough information for those practice activities. Because when you're meeting with a vendor or learning a new application, the best thing they could do is put up a problem and have you start to figure out how to solve it and then give you hints along the way. Why? Because critical thinking is what is vital in organizations. That type of training not only engages critical thinking, it lets you practice what you actually need to do. Now, I violate this rule all the time because I'm a big old nerd. And I want to tell you the history of Agile. I want to talk about the Cathedral in the Bazaar, a paper from the 1990s. I want to go back and talk about Tai Chi Ono because I Wikipedia binge every night, whatever topic I'm on. But most people aren't like me. Most people want to go into work. They want to learn to do the thing. They want to be able to do the thing and they want to go home. And that's fair. And that's right. And so we need to do training by practicing and then embed learning and behavioral checks in our work. You should not be able to check in code to a master branch that doesn't compile or has a major bug in it. That's why in a technical world, in a software engineering world, we shift quality left. We write unit tests. We do scans. It's the same principle. You have to build in quality and build in behavioral change by looking at what is the need, how do we solve that need, not just building something else. So the the interesting one of the interesting takeaways from that is the phishing tests were always failed by the security team the worst. It was in you would always ask them, well, why, you know, and it's, they always answered the same way. I wanted to see what it would do. Or, you know, people would, you know, there, we would talk to somebody a long time ago that would drop um, little flash drives and they, you know, would hand it into HR, did the right thing. Then HR would plug them in, did the wrong thing. Right. So, there's and you could do like I always think of cyber training because that's the one that's on top of my mind. I know yours is coding, but you could do monthly cyber training awareness. Um, and I think people will still click the thing because they want to see what it'll do. And I think it's a human nature thing. And I don't, I don't know if you build the systems around them or if you train them around it. And I think there's a there's a there's got to be a happy medium. And I don't think if anyone's figured it out, they're probably, you know, a billion dollar startup right now. Um, but yeah, that's you have the, to build the systems around the behavior of your people. You can't rely on people to remember something if it's important every single time, especially at scale of companies that employ thousands. And so that's where we need to look at our goal, not the tactics. We need to say our goal is to not click on phishing emails. We can train people once a year, and we probably should. But the content of that training, the form of that training, needs to be in balance with what are the incentives? What is incentivizing you to click on that email? Right? Is it genuine human curiosity? How do I keep it from your mailbox? Mm -hmm. Is it maybe a commissions tied to clicking on these emails? That's a completely different question. Maybe there's a turn time, right? So when we build training and when we build solutions to products, I think this goes back to your question earlier about why aren't many developers involved or want to be involved in the ideation process where we understand this? I don't know, because it helps you understand the behavior of your audience and build something that your audience will use and respond to in the way you want to. That's the whole point of our new world of software development. It's creating behavior change, just like learning should create behavior change, not a checkbox that said 80 people took this training. And that's what they want, the metrics they want, because they want to share upstairs. You know, you know how it all goes. It's, you know, and that's, uh, 
so I mean, I'm not asking for again for the silver bullet, but I mean, in a perfect world, like I always, you know, as 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 a leader now, I always try to say you got four hours out of your. I'm not trying to do the Google thing where eight hours a, a week is to do your own thing, but I want four hours dedicated to you telling me, like, you know, hey, if you're into Aruba Wireless or if you're into Fortinet Firewalls or if you're into whatever, I want you dedicating four hours out of your forty to. Uh, getting a certification or figuring out, get, getting a new skill. Um, but there's another level to it where, well, this is the way I've done X and this is the way, it, you know, it's stuck in my head, which is a behavioral thing. And that's one of the things where I'm always stuck on is because you're finding, you're getting these, trying to correct these bad habits. Um, and you can't really curate training for that. It's almost like you got to have small little 15 minute conversations going, slap your hand going now timmy don't do this next time right it's just it it's always been weird to me one of one of my favorite trainers once said to me that the true measure of your culture is the worst behavior you allow and so i often ask leaders i work with who does the buck stop with when you have negative behaviors when you have things that impact your team i'm not talking about like professionally negative behaviors i'm talking about checking in your code before you test it locally i'm talking about even gossip in the workplace i'm talking about booking meetings over lunch or having 7 p.m. calls or whatever that might be interrupting the sprint for the next urgent thing because somebody said so to me it all comes down to leadership you cannot delegate leadership and that leader set the tone, the standards, and the culture. And yes, change things by 10-minute conversations over the course of six months. And change things in more radical ways. That to me, leaders lead. Often people ask, what's the role of the manager in Agile? And to me, it's to foster the culture. It's to support the team members. It's to create incentives that support the team members and the company and the organization and to foster change in the right ways, doing the right things. At the end of the day, leaders, whether managers, supervisors, or just leaders in the organization who set the tone, really do set the tone. Whether you have direct reports or not, those are what will happen. That is the true measure of culture, and that will influence what happens in the small and the large questions. I agree with you, and it makes me think, and now I have a lot of stuff to do tomorrow. Um, <laughs> See, yeah. people people never said being a leader was easy. It's way harder than people think it is. Being a supervisor, not that hard. Being a leader, that's that's some real skill. The things that, like, especially with me, the things that I always thought I was good at, I've gotten a few wake-up calls. Like, you know, the ability to read people. And I got a huge wake-up call recently. And other things, like, you know, trying to find your superpower, Right. I, I used to think I was was really good at it, and I struggle with it mightily at times. Um, and that's the things that were, you know, the things that I really thought I excelled at. So, I mean, that's, again, I'm always trying to, it's constant improvement for me too. I'm, I'm just always looking for that next big thing. But sometimes, you know, I think the getting stymied thing keeps me human, right? Um, and, and just trying to look for other ways to be better. But yeah, anyway, uh, no, good, good stuff to think about. I want to talk more about wrestling. <laughs> me too. I love doing some wrestling these days. Because, you know, this was uh, wrestling for me goes back to playing, you know, getting cable at age 12. And Saturday at 
11 in the morning watching WWF and WC or NWA at 6.05. Um, you know, so we would play baseball on the court and then 6.05 came and we ran to go watch wrestling. And my grandfather didn't speak English and I used to make VHS tapes of him and I'd share them with him, the stuff that was on cable. And I'd explain who was who and the stories. And um, one of my oldest friends, Mark, we've been going to shows since we've been eight. Our dads used to take us. And then we've got finally, you know, not to get too wrapped up in this, but then, you know, ended up fulfilling a dream and kind of helping in, in, in with a couple of smaller companies locally and doing the ring announcing and the, you know, so, I mean, this is like entrenched in my blood. So when you say you're a new wrestling fan, A, I never hear anyone say they're a new wrestling fan. It's either people that grew up with it, but I'm, I'm dying to know what intrigued you or what, what got you. I know you said you saw a commercial, um, but there had to have been more. I mean, honestly, that was it. I stumbled on, I was watching Sling, and I think it was on TNT, and I stumbled on the show called The Road to Dynamite, and it was a promo package for this new wrestling show called Dynamite, and I was so bored with my then-fiancé that we turned it on, and it was such an interesting story. There were heroes and villains, and more importantly, because I'm, I'm a huge old nerd, like I told you all earlier... It was this new company, this startup, challenging the WWE, trying to get up there, having the influx of capital to be able to put on competition. So I was like, all right, I'll check this out. And I always knew, like people always said that wrestling is fake, but every TV show I watch is fake. So like that didn't bother me. Every soap opera, everything's scripted. My Watching. father used to always yell at me saying it's fake. And I go, dad, we watched Star Wars yesterday. You think that <laughs> shit was real? You know, like. It's this incredible world of stagecraft. You have your baby faces who are the heroes, your heels who are on the villains, and they tell this long-term story. One of my current stories, my favorite stories, is the story of an anxious millennial cowboy who has self-doubts and lacks compassion, who has teamed up with a lovable, wholesome cult who just wants to be friends to take on some jerk faces. I mean, that's the story. And it's like this incredibly weird yet nuanced telling with the backdrop of this incredible gladiatorial stage combat where people do actually get hurt and are actually throwing things at each other and hurting each other. The athleticism, the storytelling when somebody hits um, a DDT in the facial expression they have, whether good or ill, if there's a kick out or not. It is this beautiful soap opera that involves physical violence. And there's something about it that is truly beautiful, powerful, and majestic. And I have watched every episode of AEW Dynamite. I've watched every episode of Rampage. I watched a pay-per-view on my honeymoon on a phone because our they wouldn't let us buy one and the camera didn't, the laptop didn't work. I will go to my first pay-per-view one day, Lord willing. And it is truly an impactful experience. The wrestling community is kind of an interesting place to be a new wrestling fan because I don't know everything. Like people it's will be the like same. It's the same as the star Wars community. It's the same as the, it's anything that has a fandom it's it's the same thing, and it, it and I love them and I hate them at the same time because I'm involved in a lot of different forums and discussion areas, and it's like you guys just 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 you know I finally yelled on one of the forums, um, Cult of Kayfabe, 
um, just went on a rant. I just just enjoy the goddamn product and stop bitching. Like just be just be happy. That's how I feel about it. I love immersing myself in these storylines and the incredible athleticism. I mean, sometimes they call it like flippy stuff and like people are derisive about it. Modern wrestling where there's a lot more high flyers. There's a lot more flips. I think it is just like they're defying gravity. Some of these people. There's this one guy, Dante Martin, who every time he jumps around the ropes, it's like his feet never touch the ground. And you're just blown away by this athleticism. And so if I could say anything, especially... I know you can't see me listeners to this podcast, but I don't look like a wrestling fan. I have big polka dot glasses. I wear bows and 50s dresses with petticoats. You would not peg me as somebody who knows Bret Hart's catchphrase. But there is something incredible happening in the wrestling world with all elite wrestling. There is competition. There is startup culture. There is incremental delivery. There's a console game coming out. And above all, there are anxious millennial cowboys, just like you and me, trying to figure their way in the world by befriending some lovable cults. So I feel like we can all wrap our arms around that, even in the midst of a global health crisis. And it's making SmackDown better, which I very much appreciate. And I do like Raw and SmackDown. I, do I mean, like this, sounds, this sounds just like the dramas I watch on the CW, except there's no actual wrestling ring involved. <laughs> It's a little more violent. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, spoilers, and I don't care. The last season finale of Riverdale, they blew up two of the main characters, supposedly. You know, it was a cliffhanger. Like, what? They, they, yeah. Archie and Betty got a bomb, found a bomb from uh, Veronica's dad, and it blew up, and uh, we don't know if they survived it or not. So, you know. I'm pretty sure you are correct, then. Riverdale and wrestling are the same. See, no, the one thing that's wrestling fought a bear once. soap opera killing off a character and then bringing them back later. Like I always thought that would like, I think there's just too many people that's, that still think it's real. It's still real to me. Damn it. Cause you, I don't think you could get away with killing off a character. I, th- I would love to see it in my lifetime in wrestling. Um, but yeah, I think everyone would go absolutely into bonkers, but I mean, so I have, I have some, I'm going to share with you. Cause again, I've been watching and collecting my whole entire life. Um, there's some some classics. I know you said you got an old ECW, which was my which is my personal favorite. Um, but like old Four Horsemen promos, there's nothing. Yeah, again, this art form, this public speaking thing. Like if you look at some of the things, if you just listen to Ric Flair, or like who wrote that? Did you tell? Did you write? Did you talk that on the fly? Because if you did, like you're up there with like JFK is like one of the great speakers of our lifetime not to put rick flair and jfk in the yeah. same room together but you know what i'm saying that's one of the interesting parts about aew is they're much less scripted than wwe it reflects right. the indies that they came from and watching them there's this one person who does promos named mjf and he is an evil evil person the, as best, deal in the, the best deal in the business yes he the way he talks and I like to think I talk pretty good. I He could just kill you with words, I'm pretty sure. He weekly murders people on television just by talking at them. And there's something just incredible there. I mean, I was a debater. I love words. I love speech writing. I do communication consulting. Watching these wrestlers, you will learn more about public speaking than you will in one of my classes. They are phenomenal. 
and they tell a story, not even from what they say, but in the silence, in the in-between moments, as they roll out of a move into the other, the way their facial expression and body reflects disappointment or happiness or joy or tiredness or anger. There's just something so impactful about it. And I've only been a wrestling fan about two years now. I'm still learning a lot of the terminology, the different types in Japan and Mexico and different styles, whether it's more of a brawler style or a high flyer, but I love it. I mean, our wedding cake was a wrestling ring. Our invitations were wrestling posters. Wednesday night at my house is dedicated date night and work knows I will not work late on Wednesdays any day because it's wrestling night, y'all. You wore my heart with this guy. I'm just, I could listen to you talk about anyone that gets new into this though. I, I absolutely adore. Like, I think again, I appreciate it. I got into the Indies about 20 years ago where I could, you know, I could get a WWE ticket, sit in the 50th row and sing, say you suck and no one cared. Or I can go to one of these indie shows that have 300 people and like rub elbows with them. And, you know, like, Really, you know what I mean, and that's like I completely warm to the the entire indie community, and I think, and you know, if you want like actual like people that do this for the love, like these are the, like some of the grittiest, most amazing human beings I've ever met in my life that will put their complete bodies on the line and destroy themselves for a very very small paycheck, and it's kind of a for the art. I think it's amazing. Anyway, I don't. Well, I let me know of any cool wrestling and local indie shows in the the area we're in, and I would love to come on down and see some of them. It's, I'll invite you. My friend puts on. My friend's been putting on shows in Hamtramck, and they're amazing. I'll I'll invite you to the next one. So heels worth it then? I have not seen the show Heels because I pretty much only watch documentaries and wrestling. Okay. So I am the wrong person to ask. Okay. Did you get into Dark Side of the Ring? I watched a couple episodes. Some of them are too traumatic from my own personal background to be able to watch. Fair. Gino Hernandez is my favorite. We actually, my friend uh, submitted a t-shirt of Gino Hernandez to Pro Wrestling Tees, and they accepted it, and they make it, and then we all bought it. And uh, I'm a huge Gino Hernandez fan. I think he would have been the next, he was the next Ric Flair if he didn't uh, get in trouble. My favorite is probably Brawl for All. Because watching these wrestlers realize they can't actually, like, they right. will not beat somebody right. who, who wants to hurt them. Because one of the beauties of wrestling is that you always have to trust your opponent. Because you're throwing each other around in very particular ways to make frames on the stage. You need to catch people correctly. You need to trust someone will be there. You need to be able to go into the next spin. Actual fighting you don't give two craps about your opponent. You just want to beat them up. So it's a very different skill. They're both incredibly athletic and important. And watching them realize over the course how different that was and how just because you were a better wrestler than somebody doesn't mean you were a better fighter than them was a really fascinating world to, to learn about. Well, it was funny watching it because not to get too personal, like the JBL character was such a dick in real life and a bully and just tormented people. Um, the fact that he just got his bell rung by kind of a no-name wrestler, which was, to me, made it made the whole entire episode. Anyway, I, I remember it vividly. I thought it was awful when it happened. But, yeah, I've been I've been loving watching Dark Side. So. Um, but I'll turn you on to a bunch of other stuff. Uh, New Japan was uh, – like, there's a lot of stuff. So it warms my heart here in this. So, um, actually, I'm going to – we're going to cut things loose. Uh, Mary, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with us. We can uh, find you on LinkedIn. Mary Bobbitt, 
um, or see you on uh, the speaking circuit because I know you're going to uh, get some uh, some things coming up. But you're uh, you're over at Slalom, and uh, I, there's some great people over on that team that I know of. So I uh, wish you nothing but the best and uh, keep in touch. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Glad to continue to support Agile and best practices in software development all throughout the Michigan area. It's a wonderful place to be and an incredible, incredible community. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Mary. On behalf of, uh, we're going to wrap things up for episode 414. On behalf of Bob and Randy, do us a favor. Drink up your drinks. Get your phone numbers. You don't got to go home. You just got to get the hell out of here. See you next week. Drive careful. Beat it. Bye.